Isaiah chapter 44. The story is told of Franklin Delano Roosevelt who often endured, you know, really long receiving lines at the White House. He complained that no one really paid any attention to what was said. They were just all enthralled with the moment, shaking his hand and in the White House and all the, you know, pomp and circumstance and all that stuff. And, and he felt like it was really, he felt like it was worthless at the time. He, he was kind of frustrated because he would try to say stuff to people and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were kind of glazed over and it actually kind of made him sort of frustrated. One day during a long, particularly long reception line, he decided to try an experiment where each person that walked by, he, he just kind of murmured as he shook their hands. He said, this morning I killed my grandmother. That's what he said. He, he would say, this morning I killed my grandmother. And they're like, oh, how wonderful. Oh, that's delightful. You're doing such a good job. Keep up the good work. Like people were not listening. And his, his you know, uh, frustration was confirmed that people really weren't listening to what he says until there was this little guy on the end of the receiving line, almost, almost at the very end. And he happened to be the ambassador from Bolivia. And this little guy walked up and, you know, Roosevelt said, this morning I killed my grandmother. And, and, he, and, and just totally, uh, without any change of expression, the ambassador said, I'm sure she had it coming. And he just <laughs> walked through the rest of the line. And I think that's pretty funny because uh, that's, that's, in a sense, I feel that as a pastor, sometimes you feel like people, you wonder, are people listening to what the word says? It's not really what I'm saying. I just worry that people are, are listening to hear what the word says. You know, it's interesting, all the different things a pastor can see his congregation doing because of social media. <laughs> I think that in the olden days, um, you know, I'd see people only on Sundays and Wednesdays or when I was meeting with them and everybody put on their best behavior, you know, uh, hide the beer, the pastor's here kind of thing, you know, and, and that, that's the way we rolled back, uh, you know, before social media. But, but now it's like your social media sort of is your life and it kind of gives you away. And, and it's not that I'm sitting around being critical of everybody's lifestyle and stuff like that. But, you know, um, I, I do kind of wonder, well, I wonder if anybody's really listening to some of the stuff we're talking about because oftentimes there, there are things that happen that you just kind of go, man, I've got some work to do. <laughs> I've got some teaching that I still need to. Uh, and, and if some of you think, well, Brett's so repetitive. He says the same things over and over again. There might just be a reason why uh, I bring those things up many times because I'm not sure that uh, sometimes we're getting the message of the word loud and clear. I sort of feel that Isaiah perhaps has that same conundrum. As a communicator, obviously a prophet of God, but uh, much greater than any pastor uh, of these days, Isaiah was truly a great and amazing guy, but even he, uh, let me show you what I mean. It's at the very first few words of our text. It says here in Isaiah 44, verse one, it says, yet now hear, O Jacob, <laughs> He starts this off. Now, do you remember uh, a few Sundays ago, we, we started chapter 42. Behold, which means to look and listen. Listen up. He says, yet now hear, or I think your newer translations, many of them say, listen, listen now to what I'm about to say. Now, now flip the page. Let me show you, let me show you how repetitive old Isaiah is on this. Listen up, everybody. Um, check it out. Go to chapter uh, 46, verse three. You can just jot these down quickly in your notes if you want to, but uh, I wanna just blaze through some of his here, listen 
tune in kind of comments. It's Isaiah 46, three. He says, hearken unto me, O house of Jacob. Look at 46 verse 12. It says there, hearken unto me, you stout hearted. Uh, look at chapter 47, uh, verse eight. It says, therefore, hear now this, Isaiah declares. In Isaiah um, uh, 48, verse one, it says, um, hear this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel. Look at 48, 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel. 48, 14. Here, uh, it says, all ye assemble yourselves and hear. <laughs> um, look at uh, 48, 16. Um, it says, come unto me and hear ye this. <laughs> all in the same chapter, this is over and over again. Look at chapter 51, verse four. It says, hearken unto me, O my people, give ear, O my nation. You see, over and over and over, Isaiah is just pounding away at the people saying, listen, hearken, tune in, don't plug your ear. Like, like he's just begging the people to listen to what the Lord was saying through him. And really that's what Isaiah's problem is. People, you know, people don't sometimes listen and, and sometimes you can, you, can, uh, you can think you're listening, but you're not like the Roosevelt line. Oh yes, that's wonderful. And, and I feel like we do that, you know, oh, wonderful sermon, wonderful word, Isaiah. Good, good job, Pastor Brad, good job, scriptures. Um, but then have we really heard what the Lord has said in his word? And I think the real proof in the pudding is when we become doers of the word, doers. Um, man, you know, I, I um, you know, one of the things lately I've noticed is there's a lot of people that are being easily lured into ministries that are not really solid doctrinally. Um, I see that in, in a lot of situations, you know, and, and I've talked about various ministries from the front here that we should kind of be aware of and and yet during this season, I, I see people totally diving headfirst into some of these, you know, and, and I see women's ministry people like ladies that are tuning into the blogs and the stuff that's out there and, you know, famous women speakers that are, are doctrinally just off. And you just kind of, your heart breaks as a pastor because you know what the word says and you know what the, the people of the world are saying. And whether it's that or churches that are, you know, have weird doctrines and people are getting all excited about it, it's, it is troubling, but you know what I've realized as, as the years have gone by, I'm less frustrated now. Um, although it does still break my heart to see people kind of go in the wrong direction. Uh, but I've, I've learned I'm not supposed to control people. <laughs> That's good news. It's not my job to chase people around and say, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. Uh, my job is, is not to have dominion over your faith, but to be a helper of your joy. That's my goal is I just wanna help people be joyful by doing the right thing and doing what the Bible says. I hope you would do the same for me. Um, we're not having dominion over each other's faith. We're, we're trying to be helpers of each other's joy. So when people just say, Brett, whatever, I'm not gonna believe what the Bible says or what you said about what the Bible says, then I just have to say, Lord, it's up to you now. I leave it in your hands. You know, when Jesus taught the parable of the sower of the seed, there's an interesting percentage, you know, because there were four types of seed. Some, you know, fell among thorny ground, some fell on the wayside and, and uh, you know, it sprung up quickly. Others were taken up by the birds of the air. But, the, but the, the seed that fell on good soil and brought forth good fruit, well, that was 
one in four of the seeds, 25% of the seed took root and brought forth good fruit. And I have found over the years that that's kind of the true percentage. Jesus was right. And by the way, people blew off Jesus too. So that makes me feel a lot better. If they're blowing off what Jesus had to say and what he did, then uh, who am I to think I can do any better? You know, Jesus of course is the best of all. Um, but, uh, but it is heartbreaking when you see people doing stuff, going directions, having attitudes and actions that where they're not checking what those, that ministry is doing, you know, Acts 17, 11, you know, it'd be like the Bereans and search the scriptures and see if what that dude is doing or that guy is saying is, is true or false. It's amazing to me how, you know, um, I feel like the church today listens more to worship leaders than they do pastors. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor that I feel this way, but um, man, you know, here's all these worship leaders with Hillsong and Bethel and, um, and uh, you know, these famous people that are, you know, good, there's, good, there's good worship leaders out there. There's also ones that have some really bad theology out there. And yet it's almost like people would rather circle around a guy who can sing and play than to actually check the doctrine make sure that what's being said is true or false. And when you, when you look in the New Testament, how much of guitar playing and worship leading is part of the New Testament? It's a very minor part of the church. And yet, like the guy from Skillet, the band Skillet, he wrote an article I mentioned a few months back, you know, all these, he was talking about all these Christian artists that are bailing out of their faith. And he says, what's the problem? He says, they're not Bible teachers and they, they don't even know the word and they're trying to do ministry and, and yet they don't even really know the scriptures. And he was making the argument uh, that we need to let the Bible teachers be the Bible teachers and teach us doctrine and let the musicians sing some songs that might be encouraging, but don't confuse the two. <laughs> and I thought that's brilliant. That, that's really kind of a problem that's happening right now. You see, Isaiah is dealing with the same kind of problem. The people are choosing to sort of blow him off. And they're not really gonna listen to what he says. And, and so you kind of, your heart goes out to him because you know Isaiah's right. Um, and you know that what Isaiah is saying is inspired by the word, but, but that's why over and over and over again, Isaiah's gonna say, listen up, hearken, tune in. I'm about to say something important. Listen, listen, listen. And he says it over and over and over again. Um, so I would just say to that, may the Lord give you and me ears to hear what the spirit says through his word, and through his, his people, and especially those that are teaching us his word and sticking to scripture. Well, that's the first three words, hear ye now. <laughs> uh, that's important. And that's a big thing that Isaiah is gonna employ is this reminder to listen. He says, yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, uh, whom I have chosen. We have in this first couple of verses, three names of Israel. That's kind of interesting. There's, there's sort of the original name uh, of Jacob, uh, and, and then there's Israel. And one of the things I've, I've noted, and you, know, you don't wanna to make too much of a math thing out of this, because it's not a perfect science, but I have noticed it seems like sometimes the Lord uses the name Jacob when he refers to them in sort of their rebellious state. Um, Jacob, his name meant tricky, heel snatcher. 
Um, Israel, the name Israel, remember when Jacob wrestled God at Peniel there that night and he was smitten in the hip and walked with a limp from that day forward? And the Lord changed his name from Jacob, heel snatcher or deceitful one, and, um, and changed it to Israel. That was his new name. And that means governed by God. And so throughout the ages, it seems that God sometimes calls Israel Jacob, sometimes he calls him Israel. But, um, and again, it seems like when they're, they're called Israel, it's almost like the context is that they need to be or are being governed by God. So that's the idea. But this, this third name is maybe not quite as um, uh, familiar, Jesurun. And it is a name of Israel, but what it means, if you look it up, it means upright one or righteous one. And I almost wonder if this is the, the, the children of Israel in their future, you know, in their, in their main potential, when all of Israel is gonna be saved and they'll be declared righteous by the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ himself. Um, it's almost like you've got sort of three um, dispensations of time with Israel. You've got the Jacob time where they're in rebellion. You've got Israel when they're governed by God, but then you have this Jeshurun, which is when they're, perfectly upright in their future you know, potential. And the good news is, by the way, God sees us in all of those places. You know, you, you have those same things too. Before you were saved, you were Jacob. When you became a Christian, you became Israel, but if you would, and, uh, and then when you die and go to heaven or if you're raptured and taken up to be with the Lord, you will be, when you see him, you'll be like him and we'll be in our linen righteous robes, the Bible says, we'll be uh, no longer our dirty old self, but will be made brand new, not only you know, positionally in Christ, but also practically, legitimately in our new bodies. And it's gonna be glorious. So I, in a way, you almost see those three delineations here just in the name of the people of Israel. So the Lord says, I've, you know, I've chosen my people. Uh, and he says, I'm your help. Don't fear Jacob my servant, because uh, and thou, Jeshurun, upright ones, I have chosen you. The Lord has chosen you. God's chosen people, Israel. One of the things we're gonna read here in, um, in this passage, or at least we're gonna see, is God still chooses the Jews. He has not forsaken the Jews. They have not been replaced by the church. Um, and we've talked much about that replacement theology. Watch out for that teaching where God's pretty much done with the Jew and pretty much the church they believe has replaced Israel. That means God would have forsaken the Jews and they're no longer God's chosen people. My argument there is the Bible says he made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. There were conditional covenants put upon Abraham and Israel, but there is an everlasting, the Abrahamic covenant was based on God and God alone, not on the Jews and their behavior. It was based on his righteousness. By the way, that's the same way you and I become chosen by his righteousness and we are chosen as well. And if God can unchoose the Jews, aren't you a little nervous, you replacement theology people, that God could unchoose you? He probably should, if you think about it. Um, but I don't believe God goes back on his word. He didn't do it with the Jews and he doesn't do it with us. Praise the Lord for that. So um, he says, man, I have chosen you. Verse three, for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. 
Um, in the Bible, water speaks of two main things. One is the word of God. Now you are clean by the word I've spoken to you. Christ washes his church in the water of the word. There's the cleansing part. But one of the other pictures of the, the of water in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. And that's the case here because it's, it's given to us contextually. He says, you know, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. And then he says, I will pour out my spirit upon thy seed. Um, it's, he's pouring out his spirit like water. He's going to, he says, upon the offspring of Israel. And they're gonna spring up as among the grass by the willows. Now, by the way, this is gonna happen in the last days. Even Joel, the prophet, talked about this. You might jot in your notes, Joel chapter two, uh, verse 28, where it says, Joel prophesied, says, and, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Um, and if you recall there in the book of Acts, chapter two, verses 17 through 21, you know, Peter quotes from this passage about the pouring out of the Spirit, which was partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost there in the book of Acts, but ultimately fulfilled when the Jews are brought back to life and they all know Jesus as the Messiah. So all that to say, this is the Lord gonna pour out his Spirit in the last days. By the way, when it says that the, um, you know, there in Joel, when it says that the, um, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams. Have you noticed, speaking of social media, have you noticed how many people are seeing dreams now and visions and they're telling, sharing them on, it's becoming very popular. What do you do with that? There was that pastor a couple weeks ago and I've had no less than 30 people message me. Uh, and I gotta warn you, on my message, on my Instagram, I have a really hard time keeping up with that. I don't check it that often. So no, probably call one of the pastors at the church office. They, they know the answers better than I do about these things. Uh, but, uh, but I do know the answer about this. So there's, there's a pastor that gave a, a sort of a vision of punching the calendar and this stuff. And it was kind of scary and kind of brutal. What do you do with that? Well, let me just tell you, when you hear a dream from someone on social media, uh, well, first of all, the, the thing you first measure a dream or a vision by is um, the word of God. See, we've got everything we need right here in the word of God. So if somebody says, I had a dream from God or heaven um, or a vision, old men, young men, whatever, the Bible says in the last days that'll happen. So I'm not denying that it won't happen and it, and it should and it will, especially the closer we get to the end. But the thing you have to be careful of is to make sure that it's not somebody just the pizza they had the night before or indigestion that gave them a dream uh, that was a little weird and making more of it than they should. So how do you discern? You've got the word of God, number one. And then you also need to just wait and watch. You, you would never want to set your doctrine or your theology by someone's dream or vision. It has to line up with scripture and also what your response should be should also line up with scripture. And by the way, I'm just gonna throw you guys a little bit of a hint about the pastor that gave his vision of, of the calendar and all that stuff. Um, listen carefully because his dream sounded pretty in line with scripture as far as the last days and the troubled times that are gonna come and all this stuff to a degree. But it's, my question is, what does he tell us to do? What, what was his admonition and if you listen to that carefully, you might find it hard to defend sort of our response biblically uh, to what he said. That's just, I'm just throwing you a hint. I'm not saying for sure that the guy's off the wall. I'm just saying uh, something smells a little fishy to me because, um, you know, 
going out and getting ammo and guns and stuff is not necessarily in line as much with what the Bible talks about what we're supposed to be doing in the last days um, and stuff like that. I'm just saying. Now, uh, you know, as a supporter of the Second Amendment and all that, I, I'm not arguing against, I'm just saying, be careful when you hear these things. We're looking for scriptural alignment. I'm not asking for your own personal opinion alignment or what your politics are alignment. I'm asking for you and I to align ourselves with scripture when we hear a dream or something like that. So if the dream is, is something that there's tough times coming and, and, then, and then the admonition is, put your trust in the Lord, wait upon him, you know, let the scriptures give, be your guide, uh, have good fellowship one with another. Like anything that you can say, oh yeah, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible, that's in the Bible. But if it's something you're like, I don't really know the verse that, that, uh, that says we're supposed to do this, uh, then you should be careful with what you're hearing. I hope that's helpful to you um, because I, I think we are gonna see more dreams and visions as we, the closer we get to the end. And you have to kind of weigh out the legitimacy of those things because there's gonna be a lot of fake ones too, guaranteed. Uh, well, all that to say, uh, the, the Lord, he does plan on pouring out his spirit more and more, I think exponentially as we get closer to the end and especially upon the Jews in that time. So good stuff here. Um, he says in verse five, one shall say, I am the Lord's and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob and another shall sus subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, Jehovah. <clears throat> and surname himself, <clears throat> excuse me, surname himself by the name of Israel. <clears throat> so, you know, basically this is Israel, uh, you know, returning to the Lord is the idea. That's, that's one thing that the Jews will do. Um, but I, I would ask this question. Can you say the first line of this in your own life? One shall say, I am the Lord's. Can you say that about yourself? My life belongs to the Lord, Jehovah, the true and living God. <clears throat> you know, it's funny. I think there's, there's a tendency for you and me to have sections of our lives that we give to the Lord, but we have compartments that we keep to ourselves. You know, we, we say, Lord, you can have my... Uh, family time. I'll do some family devos and um, you can have that part of my life. I am the Lord's in family time. But what about your own personal recreation time? Are you the Lord's there too? Um, is the Lord invited into that section of your life? What do you do with your personal time? And, you know, and, and how do you spend that? And, and is it something that would be honoring the Lord or is actually contrary to the Lord? Um, we like to keep our little closets full of our own little things that kind of keeps the Lord out. And we try to compartmentalize. Wouldn't it be great if we could, we could say, my whole being, my whole life belongs to the Lord. And that's what's gonna happen with these people in those days. Well, now in verses six and onward, we're gonna see Isaiah talk about the uniqueness of, of the Lord, how he's unique. Jehovah, the God of Israel is unique among all other gods, little g. And he's gonna take great care to explain that um, in chapter 44, um, pretty much through most of 45, uh, talking about the uniqueness uh, of the only true God. So he says in verse six, thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. 
and beside me there is no God. Do you remember a couple weeks ago I showed you how some of the religious groups that claim Jesus is not God and they separate Jesus from God. Um, you can't do that because right here, it even says in verse six, you see at least the two parts of the Trinity. We saw the third part of the Trinity in verse three, the Holy Spirit. But in verse six, it says, thus saith the Lord, that's Jehovah, the King of Israel and his Redeemer. Who's the Redeemer? Jesus. And he's also called the, the Lord of hosts. So he says, I am the first and the last, beside me there is no God. And I showed you how if you take, for example, our Mormon friends or the Jehovah's Witness who, who separate Jesus from God, um, you can lovingly show them in Revelation chapter one where God says, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then you can take them, and that's God speaking, the Father, the Almighty. And then you go to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and you see where Jesus says, I, Jesus, am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see, there's only one Alpha and Omega. Um, there's only one beginning and end. And I showed you how you can kind of prove biblically that there's really only one that's the, the, you know, the first and the last. And that's what God is. Um, he's the beginning of the line and the end of the line. He is the whole line. That's the idea there. So uh, he goes on in verse seven. He says, and who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto, uh, unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and have declared it? You are even my witnesses is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. Um, there's no other God. One of the things about Mormonism I often bring up that you know the, the bicyclist that comes to your house with his uh, tie and short sleeve white shirt and helmet, um, he won't bring this up, that Mormons you know, can become gods. Uh, uh, they really, uh, there's, a, there's a book called The God Makers, I think it was, um, uh, Walter Martin, I think, who wrote that book, if, I, if memory serves. But basically, that's what they believe, is you, you, as a good Mormon, if you really achieve and do what you're supposed to, you enter the ter terrestrial, celestial, and then the celestial level of heaven where you can actually become God. And they, you know, the doctrines and covenants, the teachings of the Mormon church say that, you know, that, that God was once like, kind of like you and me, who was sort of a good Mormon and he became sort of God. And that's not biblical, that there, there's not many gods and you're definitely not gonna be one of them. <laughs> Thank the Lord for that. Um, and I'm not either. There's only one God and the Lord says there's no other. And this is one of the things that's unique about God is he's, he's the only true God. Um, anytime somebody tries to tell you there's other gods, you have to understand that's false teaching. Um, there's, there's a teaching out there that you have to be careful of where um, they're saying that there are, um, there's one creator God, but then there's other gods too. And that's why the 10 commandments says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. How could you have gods before me if there are no other gods? Well, the answer is real simple, but here's what they need to be willing to say. And if they're not willing to say this, I think it's wrong teaching. You have to be willing to say, yes, there's other gods, but they are false gods, not true gods. There's only one true God. There are many false gods. And if you're, not, if, you're, if you're not willing to say that, I think you're in real biblical error. And I think that, that you should probably watch that kind of teaching. Jesus said this in John chapter 17, verse three, and this is life eternal, that they might know the only 
true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus said there's only one true God. So if you say there are many gods and you're not willing to say there's only one true God and all the rest are false, then you are in contradiction with Jesus himself. Uh, I would wanna be in, in, in your shoes if you were doing that. So watch out for that teaching, it's a wrong teaching. But basically there's only one God, the Lord says no other. Well, now in verses nine uh, through verse 20 really, we're gonna deal with the lunacy of idolatry. Um, now don't check out of this section because I think a lot of times we modern day Christians, we read about idolatry in the book of Isaiah and the Old Testament and think, well, good thing we don't have little asterisks and Baal idols laying on our mantles. Um, but we really do and, and we have to kind of be a little creative in realizing that the same gods that they worshiped back then are alive and well today. We just don't have their little you know, image sitting on our mantle but the notion that's behind them, and I'll show you how that works out. Even the Bible kind of shows us through time how that shakes out. So he starts off and, and it just kind of gets into how ridiculous it is to worship something that you made with your own hands. In verse nine, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity and their delectable things shall not profit and they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed and the workmen. They are of men. Let all be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear and shall be ashamed together. The smith or the blacksmith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashioneth it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out his ruler and he marks it out with a line. He fits it with uh, planes and marks it out with the compass and makes it after the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that may remain in the house. He hews him down cedars and takes the cypress with the oak. He strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and bakes bread. Yea, he makes a God and worships it and he makes a graven image and it falls down thereto. He burns part of it in the fire and part of it he eats with flesh. He roasts with fire and is satisfied. Yea, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm and I've seen the fire and the residue thereof, he makes a God. Even his graven image, he falleth down into it and worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, deliver me for thou art my God. They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth it in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire, yea, I have baked bread upon the coals thereof, I have roasted flesh and eaten of it, and shall I make the residue or the remaining part of the wood um, uh, thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stalk of a tree? 
he feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? <laughs> this is some good logic right here. The Lord's just saying, think about it. You guys go out there and plant a tree and you let the rain grow it up, which is God saying, me, <laughs> I grow the tree, you planted the seed. The tree grows up, you cut it down and you cut it into chunks. One chunk you throw into the fire to warm yourself. Another chunk you make coals so you can cook your food. Another chunk you make a, a God and you say, you bow down to it and say, save me, save me. You're, you're crying, the, the Lord's saying, are you kidding? You know, one, one chunk of the wood you burned and the other chunk of the wood you now think it's God. The Lord's just saying how ridiculous idolatry is. Do you think that thing is gonna save you? Is that, that you know, now, the logic of that is pretty painful and people have done that for centuries, millennia. That's human nature to worship objects. Now we do the same thing as, as far as the objects go. We have, instead of you know, wood uh, idols, we have idols of chrome, rubber, and steel. <laughs> we have idols of sheetrock and uh, tile and um, you know, siding. We have idols of uh, objects that we tend to worship that, are, that we're, you know, we, we hope that makes us happy or will bring us prosperity or whatever it is. They're just different notions, but they're just inanimate objects. There's no power behind them. Psalm 120, um, um, pardon me, 115, uh, listen to verse four. This is the psalmist saying, uh, 115 verse four, it says, their idols are of silver and gold. They, they're the work of men's hands. They have mouths but they don't speak. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. The Lord says here, you guys that make these dumb idols, you're deaf, dumb, and blind, just like the idol. And you can't do anything, you can't go anywhere, you're just like, you are like, like what you worship. And I don't wanna worship something that's not gonna um, you know, make me better. But if you worship the true and living God, what you worship, you become like. Um, that's what the psalmist is declaring. So Isaiah is like the psalmist, just pointing out how totally ridiculous the idea of idolatry uh, is. Now, before we dismiss that too quickly, um, we have to remember that idolatry comes in different forms in the New Testament. Um, you know, Paul even attempted to speak to the Corinthian church about this. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and you can jot this down in your notes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19, Paul challenges, challenges the Corinthian church and says, what say I then, that the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to the idol, is that anything? But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils, not to God. And I would not that you have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Um, what is he saying? He's saying that, you know, he, he's acknowledging there's nothing behind the actual idol itself but there's something that's spiritually linked to that inanimate object. It's not the object itself, but there are demonic, evil, 
things behind those things. So for us, what are they? Well, in, it's the same thing they had in those days. So when you worshiped Astrith in ancient times, you know, the little Astrith God, or you know, another um, sort of name or delineation was the goddess Diana. And if you go to Ephesus today, you'll see images of Diana because Ephesus was the center of Diana worship. We were there a couple summers ago and you see this ugly goddess with a multi-breasted image and she's the goddess of fertility and really sexuality. And they had all kinds of these temples for Diana where they would worship and practice all kinds of sexual promiscuity. It was just pornography. It was just sexual uh, improper behavior. And it's the same thing we do today with pornography. Um, it's, it's fornication and sexual, it, it, they're worshiping the same thing. So you may not have the, the stone goddess of Diana on your mantle, but you might have it on your computer uh, when you're, no one's looking. And you might be worshiping this devil. There's a demonic power and entity behind that, that you don't wanna have any part of that. And so as we look at this, you know, Paul reminds us, man, there's a demonic entity behind those things. So we gotta be wise, we gotta think through that. Well, all that to say, um, this is the notion that the, you know, Isaiah is trying to get across. Now, by the way, what he says in verse 20, he says, he feedeth on ashes, a deceived heart hath turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Um, that's an interesting image there of the lie in the right hand. Um, in fact, um, in Zechariah uh, chapter 11, verse 17, um, it says, woe to the idle shepherd. Now this is another name for the Antichrist. Um, he leaves the flock, the sword will be upon his arm and upon his right eye and his arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly destroyed. There's this description of this Antichrist uh, and has, how his, uh, he's gonna have this wound. Now Revelate, the book of Revelation, talks about the, there's gonna be an injury, even seeming uh, like a fatal wound in Revelation chapter 13, that's gonna happen to this character in the, in the tribulation period. But some make this link to what Isaiah is saying about the in place of Christ or antichrist, there's a, uh, this lie in my right hand is kind of an imagery that might be conjuring up the evil that's gonna be ultimately seen in the idolatry of antichrist. So uh, for you prophecy buffs, there's a link there that you can kind of look into. Well, he goes on in verse 21 and he says, remember th these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee, thou art my servant, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. Um, I love this. The Lord says, I'm not gonna forget you. Uh, I've made you and I will not forget you. This is where, again, Replacement theology doesn't make sense. If the Lord says, I'm just gonna forget you and I'm gonna bless my church, then this, this would make God a liar in his, in his word. And he doesn't forget um, the people of God. Psalm 121, I love verse four. It says, behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber or sleep. God is keeping Israel. He's watching over them and he's got his eye on them and he does not sleep. He has not forgotten them. And that's true of you as well. The Lord doesn't forget about you. Um, you know, it always cracked me up as a kid reading the story of Noah because there's Noah. And if you do the math, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but he was in the ark for over a year, door closed. Talk about quarantine, talk about weird isolation, the world dead. And he and his family are the only ones left. 
I mean, that's gotta be a weird feeling. And in there for over a year. And then the Bible says, and God remembered Noah. And I used to think, oh man, good thing he finally remembered him after a year. It's almost like God's like, oh, oh no, I forgot about Noah. No, that's not what happened. Uh, it's, it, the idea is God never forgot. He remembered Noah and he had, his, had Noah on his mind the whole time. And that's true of you right now. You might be feeling like you're forgotten of the Lord and that you're isolated and alone, but I want you to know that God remembers you and he's got his eye on you and he'll never forsake you. I love that. Not only does he remember us and care about us, but check out what else he does in verse 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me for I have redeemed thee. Oh man, this, man, we can just camp out on this verse all night long. We got redemption, we got the remission of sin and the covering of sin and uh, the payment, the penalty. I mean, this, there's so much stuff here that's so powerful. Um, but remember, the, the context of this is the uniqueness of Jehovah as opposed to all the other false gods. And I, I wanna point that out because um, that's one of the things as far as convincing people to not follow after other religions um, because they fall so short. If you're interested, for example, this, this is a great read. Um, for those of you that are tempted to... Um, be into Buddha or Buddha's sayings. I've noticed there's a trend right now. People are quoting from Buddha. Um, Buddha was a total loser. Now I'm brutal to say that uh, and people don't like me for saying stuff like that. Um, but he, he was, if you read his story and know his family and his history and what happened, it's totally horrifying. Ravi Zacharias was much more gentle than I was. And he wrote a book, a little booklet called The Lotus and the Cross. And man, I would recommend that if you are tempted to um, you know, dabble in Buddhism or whatever, because the question is, it's this great little story that kind of deals with Buddhism versus you know, the, the, the work of Jesus. And um, you know, the question really is, is this, this woman who's had a life of total horrible things, but including prostitution and her life was a total mess. And the idea is what does Buddhism do for her and what does Jesus do? And there's this beautiful story. And, um, and I think it's carefully as Ravi, who recently went to heaven, by the way, uh, he's in heaven with the Lord now, but Ravi Zacharias always had a way of being gentle, but also very profound. And his comparison of Jesus, the Lotus and the cross is worth your time. You can read it in just a few hours. It's a short little story. But if, uh, and I hand that out to people that are Buddhists uh, whenever I can. If somebody says, I'm a Buddhist, they'll say, hey, I've got a book for you, you know, because it's so good. But the reason I bring that up is what can Buddha do for you? The answer, nothing. You know, um, finding that state of the snuffed out candle and losing yourself and all this stuff, it'll get you nowhere. And what about your sin? Uh, see, the problem is Buddha does nothing for the sinful, evil side of humanity. Jesus is the only one of all the religious faiths and all the different teachings of various, you know, gurus and religious leaders or whatever. Jesus is the only one that actually did something for the problem with humanity. And that is Jesus redeemed us. He purchased us back with the price of his own blood. And that's what it says here. I have blotted out your, with a thick cloud, your sins, transgressions. 
And as a cloud, I've blotted out thy sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed thee, purchased you back. You sold yourself out, that's what redemption is. I have redeemed thee. Um, This is separate from other gods, false gods. Jesus is the only one. God of Jacob, Israel, is the only one that deals with sin. Um, Ask yourself, what does my religion really do for me? Because the question you need to ask is, how does my sin dealt with? And uh, that, that's the real issue right there. I love this. Isaiah is really uh, hitting important points here about the, what separates the true and living God from all other false gods. And then he goes, after saying such a glorious uh, statement about our sins being blotted out, then I love what he says, verse 23. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree therein, for the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. It's almost like the first verse there, uh, verse 22 is, the Lord did this. Well, what are you gonna do because of that? Bust out into some song and sing of the glorious things the Lord has done. That's why we worship here at Athey Creek. We worship the Lord because of his great deeds. Redemption is one of those great things that's worthy to sing about of all the goodness of the Lord. We do that. And that's really what Isaiah is saying, man. He redeemed us, so let's bust out a song about redemption. That's what he says. Verse 24, thus saith the Lord, thy redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, uh, alone that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Um, by the way, I love this language. The Lord forms Israel from the womb. Uh, That's as a nation. But the Bible also teaches that that's true of you and me. We were formed by the Lord. He knew us in our mother's womb. And we are fearfully and wonderfully made by the Lord. Um, It's the Lord's handiwork. It's not just, you know, fetal tissue being formed by um, accidental sets of circumstances of cell multiplication and all that stuff. Um, That's the way some of the things the Lord does when he's creating. But science can't, produce the breath of life. And science cannot make a living thing. That's why abortion is such an abomination. Um, For people to destroy that which the Lord is doing in a mother's womb is just unspeakably evil. And I sure hope as, as we get more down the road in science and understanding, all you gotta do is look at the 3D imaging of a little child being formed in a mother's womb. It's a person. And I don't care what people say, uh, no one has the right to, to take that life. And that's why we as Christians, it's not that we're just trying to be difficult politically. We see what the Bible teaches and God says, I have formed each person in the mother's womb. And it's, it's a person. God defines it not as fetal tissue, uh, it's a person. And uh, God is forming that little baby within the mother's womb. And the hypocrisy and the double standard is profound. Um, you know. I have to say, um, one of the things that's strange about the days we're living is I, I had great hope to see that science was starting to show there's no denying that in the mother's womb, it's a life. And, and medic, medicine's already re- realizing that. You know, they do in vitro surgeries now. They, they do surgeries on babies in the mother's womb because it's a little person and they can keep it alive and, and work on it. You can interact with a baby in the mother's womb um, you can put a flashlight on her belly and slowly move it around and the baby will follow with its hand. Like there's, you know, prenatal influence is something that's totally 
clearly true. Um, and so while medical science finally has to admit, yeah, it's a life, then you start to say, well, how then ethically can that same doctor that's doing the surgery on a, a, a baby then also go in and tear that life out in pieces? How can that be ethically right? And you think, my hope was that we would see the craziness of that and that we'd realize abortion is just totally evil and wrong. Here's the problem. I didn't anticipate that the world would start to devalue human life itself. I should have figured it out because the Bible talks about in the last days that there'll be people killed again. Kind of like the good old days of the Inquisition or the Roman persecution of the church. And there's gonna be people who will be beheaded because they're not willing to take a mark of this coming world leader. Um, and the love of many has grown cold and people are gonna hate each other and gonna despise you. You know, there was a woman who uh, put on her Facebook, uh, I think yesterday, something about, you know, everyone who votes Republican should be dead. That's what she said. So everybody kind of shared that and now her whole social media is kind of blown up. And, um, but there's this notion out there that's starting to really rumble that there are certain people that should actually die and we need to control the population. And uh, there's, this, there's this kind of worldview of, of saying, you know, uh, humanity is just sort of a parasite uh, on the earth and we need to, you know, exterminate. And, and, and that's starting to become a worldview, kind of like Hitler, kind of like other people throughout the ages. And it's not gonna look like Hitler, but it, it's starting to sound kind of like that. Um, so that's the sad thing is there's this population control and they're sort of saying human life's really not all that valuable. So that's why I think they're gonna be able to keep rationalizing abortion and it's really heartbreaking. Christians, we should be praying for the unborn and we should be speaking up for the unborn because um, they can't speak for themselves. Well, as tragic and horrible as that is, um, that's what the Bible says. The Lord, he, uh, he formed us in, in the mother's womb. Well, and then he's gonna start talking about what he's doing. Uh, check this out, verse 25. He that frustrates the tokens, now that's a King James way of saying, uh, frustrating the prognostications or the forecasts of the experts. He'll frustrate those people that are trying to predict the future. So he says, he'll frustrate the tokens of, of the liars that, and maketh diviners mad that turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish that confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited and to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof. This is where the Lord, like we looked at on Sunday, starts talking about what's gonna happen in the future of Israel. And he's, he's telling the future. He says, you guys can prognosticate till you're blue in the face but you're gonna get it wrong and I'm gonna make you liars and you're gonna go crazy when you see how I make things happen. So the Lord is the one who knows the beginning from the end. Um, and so this verses 25 and 26 is sort of the setup for what we read about in verses 27 to the end, all the way through chapter 45, verse four. We looked at that on Sunday and that's this, the Lord saying, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna raise up Cyrus. I'm gonna allow Jerusalem to be destroyed and leveled. That's what he started hinting at there in verse 26. 
And Cyrus would come, take over Babylon, and eventually let the Jews go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But the Lord named Cyrus by name 150 plus years before he even came on the scene. So we looked at that on Sunday and, and the profound prophecy of God and how the Bible is unique in that it speaks of future events with 100% accuracy. So if you missed that, it's called a profound prophecy. And that was Sunday's text that brought us all the way to chapter 45 and, and brings us right now to verse five of chapter 45. Let's go on in verse five. Chapter 45, verse five. He goes on and says, I am the Lord, there is none else, there is no God beside me. I girded thee, thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is none else. So again, the exclusivity of God right here. Now look at verse seven. This is, this is an interesting one. The Lord says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Hmm. There's a good one. That's, that's a, a verse that I get questioned as a pastor. I, I was reading Isaiah and it says, I, the Lord, create the light and the darkness. I make peace and create evil. The Lord creates evil? Well, it says it right here. That's what it says. Now, now you say, well, this is tricky. And it is, it is tricky. The text in question here refers to all physical evil. Um, uh, by the way, Lamentations 3.38 contrasts the um, uh, prosperity versus adversity. Um, if you would, the evil of adversity. Um, so you're saying, Brett, so I created evil. Is it the Lord creating Satan? Well, that's just it. We do know that God created, let's call him Lucifer, um, which seems to be his name before the fall. And then after he was cast out of heaven, became Satan, the devil, um, you know, the evil one, the dragon. The Bible has all kinds of names for him after he fell <laughs> from heaven. But, um, you know, uh, the, the word here for evil is, is important. It's the word ra in Hebrew, ra like R-A, and it's not like the Egyptian word, you know, for the sun god or whatever. It's the Hebrew word that means adversity. Um, so, um, or, or you might even say calamity. If you look in a dictionary, a Hebrew dictionary, it'll say calamity. So you can say the Lord, he makes peace and he creates calamity. So when you say calamity, you like, mean like earthquakes and stuff like that? Yeah, um, good physical or bad physical things that happen on the earth. Um, while the evil is physical distress, misfortune, calamity, natural evil such as storms or earthquakes, um, often disasters, um, it comes through the hand of wicked men sometimes, but also is allowed by the hand of God. God allows those things. Um, so in the Hebrew way of speaking, he's basically saying that the Lord permits it and actually creates those things. He created all things. Now. Um, the reason this is kind of important is because um, the evil spoken of in this text and similar passages like Jeremiah 18, 11, you can check that out in your notes or Lamentations 3, 38, Amos 3, 6. It, it, it's referring to a natural evil, but not the moral evil. The moral evil that we're talking about, that people tend to associate with this verse, I the Lord created evil. He's, you think, did he create moral evil? What the Lord seems to have done is purposefully created free will. 
Um, and then that free will, like, like for example, he, he created Satan in his beauty. He was a beautiful, the most beautiful of all his creation uh, beings was Satan or Lucifer. But Lucifer had a free will that God gave him. And then because of that free will, he chose to go morally evil. And so um, you could say that the Lord created evil in that sense too, that he created someone with a free will. Augustine, by the way, taught that evil is not a substance. Uh, it is, as it were, a byproduct of our freedom. Evil is a byproduct of our freedom. That's kind of an interesting way of looking at it, especially like our sin. So, you know, there was no evil on the earth until Satan came. Well, when did Satan become evil? When he chose to be lifted up with pride and said, I will be like God. Remember that whole thing? Um, and then Satan, who is evil, came to the earth and tempted Adam and Eve with evil. Once they chose evil, evil was introduced by humanity. Uh, so e evil is not a substance, as it were, it's a byproduct of our free will, especially our sin. And um, so when it comes to the Lord creating evil, I think we have to be careful because, you know, there are scriptures um, that teach us that uh, God is not evil and there's no darkness in him at all. And so some people say there's a contradiction in the Bible. Um, but I believe that God created all things and not moral evil. That's, that was free will, that's a byproduct. So it's really an interesting discussion that people have, but um, it's, it's what God chose to do. Now, some of you might say, Brent, that explanation, you start touching on issues, you're sort of dancing around the issue. I'm not really. But if you think that, I can understand. The bottom line is, um, if you don't like what I'm saying, tough bananas, God says this. I form the light, create darkness, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And you're not God. Uh, and if you want to challenge God, make your own universe. Create your own heaven and the earth. Uh, make your own sun. And uh, then you can maybe challenge God. <laughs> I, I say that sort of lightly, but at the same time, um, God can do whatever he wants. We do know that even though this verse says, I, Lord, created evil, not, I believe, moral evil, but the evil of calamity, if you would, or the um, uh, um, adversity, he allows that stuff in our lives. We ultimately know also the Lord says, I am a good God and I have good plans for you, thoughts of peace, not of evil. So he allows calamity and adversity in our life, but it's always meant to bring about good for his people. So you can rest assured that God is still good. Well, um, he goes on, verse eight, drop down ye heavens from above and let, a, uh, let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Um, shall the clay say to him that fashioneth, what makest thou or, or thy work? He hath no hands. Um, now, by the way, this Romans chapter nine, Paul quotes from this basically saying, who are you that reply against God and say, I would do it differently than you, God. Who are you? You're just the clay. Does the clay talk to God and say, you, why did you make me into this pot? It's ridiculous. God is the creator and you're just a bunch of clay and that's, you need to kind of know your position. Now, some of you don't like that, but that's where the Lord's just basically saying, woe to him that strives with his maker. You're not supposed to argue with God on this one. Um, 
By the way, you know, when I, when I shake my puny little fist at God, what I have to do is look at the hand of God because here's the potter, Jeremiah 18. Read Jeremiah 18, the potter story. But when he says, who is the pot that replies to the maker, the, you know, the pot maker or the potter? Um, when you look at the hand of the pot maker who's squeezing the clay, there's a nail print in that hand. That very same hand that's squeezing and shaping and making you into the pot that you're supposed to be, that's the same hand that gave his life for you. And so I'm okay with the potter doing whatever he wants with me. He earned that right when he died on the cross. Who are you to reply against God? Don't do that. Woe unto him, verse 10, that saith unto his father, what begettest thou? Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of the things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. I have made the earth and a created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host have I commanded. You know, the point is, if you can believe that, that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, then everything else is easy. It's not, not hard to believe what God does and that he's good and that he's got a plan if you just believe he created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> I love that. Verse 13, I have raised him up in the righteousness. I, I will direct um, all his ways. He shall build my city. He shall let go my captives for uh, price, nor, uh, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Ethiopia, and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee, in chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else, and there is no God. Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. I love that, that's Jesus, the Savior. Verse 16, they shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols, but Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. The Jews will not be left forgotten, but they'll be saved with an everlasting. How long is the salvation God's gonna make for the Jews? Everlasting, that's what it says. Replacement theology is totally in opposition to what the Bible teaches. And it says it over and over and over again. So this is just the Lord confirming his plan for his people, the Jews, d d uh, confirming that he alone is God, there is no other. And he's a God who's got good plans and good purposes for his people. Now, before we go into verse 18, uh, verse 18 is such a great verse, I don't wanna rush through it. So let's stop on verse 17. We'll pick up verse 18 next Wednesday night because it's some great stuff in there and we don't wanna rush through the last part of this chapter. Let's pray together. And Lord, we're thankful for your word. Lord, just again, just your greatness. Um, Lord, we understand that you're so powerful and so um, beyond our ability to even comprehend uh, your great and mighty works. And Lord, how thankful I am that we can just bask in your greatness tonight as we consider your word. But even in your greatness, you still love us, have a plan for us. Lord, we see that illustrated in your people, the Jews. And then on a second tier with us who've been grafted into the vine of, of Israel, we, we too get to be called your people by your grace. 
Lord, I pray that you'd help my brothers and sisters that sort of build a case against you in their mind or their heart. Lord, I see the tendency for puny humanity to shake their little fists at you. But may they see the loving hand that was pierced on the cross for them. Um, that Lord, you've earned the right to do whatever it is that you wanna do with humanity. Let alone be kind to us, gracious, compassionate, and merciful. Lord, I pray that during these days of confusion and strife and people that are angry and uptight about so many things, I pray that your church, that we would be a people that are calm, putting our trust in you. Help us to be decisive, knowing what's good and what's right. Help us to act according to your plan and your purpose. And, and Lord, I pray that you'd give us great wisdom in these days. Lord, I pray that the Athey Creekers that have been going through your word for year after year, that they wouldn't be easily duped by emotional movements, by um, the latest fads, um, that they wouldn't allow the doctrine that they know to be sort of thrown by the wayside because of the latest trends. I pray that, Lord, your word would be our standard and that we would do well as we lock into to what's right follow you, Lord. So bless your people tonight. May this time spent in your word bring forth good fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.